Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm very excited about the information that you're going to share with me and our audience today. So can you please go ahead and introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Sure, thanks so much uh, for the invitation to talk with you and your listeners. I'm Christina Weiland. Um, I'm an associate professor at the School of Education and by courtesy at the Ford School of Public Policy. And at Michigan, I co-direct the Education Policy Initiative at Ford, and I serve as head of the Equity and Early Learning Lab at the School of Education. So it sounds like you're very busy. So thanks again for taking the time to fit this in. Can you share a little bit about the areas that your research focuses? Yeah, so my research focuses on the early childhood period, by which we mean the ages of zero to eight. So I look um, at the policies and interventions that best promote positive development for young kids during those um, really critical early years. And I particularly focus on children from families with low incomes. So with that in mind, and this is a very broad question, but from your expertise and research, how has the pandemic impacted young students in that age group, impacted their learning? Yeah, so, you know, the good news always when we talk about this group is that development is amazing and children are really resilient. So I would say that first, (laughs) Um, but resiliency does have its limits, of course. And so um, young kids have been in a situation where they're less at risk in terms of the detrimental health effects that say older Americans are experiencing, um, especially the unvaccinated, uh, but they, can transmit the virus um, and their learning um, centers have had to, and their schools have had to implement um, safety precautions that have uh, changed the ways in which they interact in classrooms when they are back in classrooms, right? So that might mean that instead of, uh, you know, playing with my friend in the way that I used to, that I'm doing an activity by myself with my own materials. Um, or it might mean that, um, you know, I'm in a little pod within the classroom and I'm not react, uh, interacting with the full range of peers in the classroom. For many kids too, um, particularly in the zero to five space, their uh, settings were really disrupted where enrollment really dipped, uh, say, for infants in Colorado last summer, it was down by 42%. Um, and then throughout the school year um, from zero to five in particular, there were really large dips in, in preschool enrollment. Um, and in kindergarten too, some families kept their kids out um, and uh, found another arrangement for them uh, for, that, um, for that year. So they've been really affected um, in terms of their really normal day-to-day life and in terms of the kinds of uh, learning experiences that we know are um, optimal for their development. And you recently released a policy brief on the those academic disruptions that have been caused by the pandemic on preschool to second grade students and the effects that they've had. Can you explain that report? Yeah, so we really followed kids from zero to eight as best we could, but you're right that more of the evidence is really preschool through second grade. Um, 
But so what we um, kind of saw happening, those of us in the field um, and that we were doing in our own research contexts were that when things pivoted, when early programs um, had to change so much and public schools in many cases were shuttered um, and teachers were pivoting to remote learning, we as researchers really tried to document that, right? Um, because there was a new normal and we needed to know what that was so that we could identify the best way to meet the needs of kids and teachers and programs. Um, and so all told, uh, our review turned up over 300 studies of the effects of uh, the crisis on young children's learning. Um, and on uh, early care and education settings in schools. And that's just far too much for a leader who's really interested in evidence-based decision-making, decision as many of them are, to kind of shift through, summarize, figure out what's most useful when they are faced with a decision. So um, a large group of us, 16 researchers all told nationally, um, and 10 early childhood policy leaders came together to synthesize that evidence uh, to learn, kind of take a survey of the field, what do we know, what do we not know, um, and what does that point to in terms of particular policy solutions for uh, meeting kids' learning needs and, um, you know, meeting, uh, addressing learning setbacks that we see in the data that have happened nationally for young kids and meeting the needs of their teachers and their programs. Why was it important to have so many different individuals come together to conduct that work? So a synthesis style approach is what we went for, or um, a consensus, because uh, we, as researchers and as leaders, we have different um, expertise. We work with different places. We focus on different aspects of early learning. And so to bring us all together and have one statement um, that both said, here's what we know and here's what we should do about it was a way to, again, try to cut down on just um, the amount of stuff that a leader has to shift through, right? So, you know, leaders, the day-to-day -day demands on them are huge. Um, they've had to pivot on things like, you know, is six feet okay? Is three feet okay? How are we gonna handle ventilation? And so this is trying to really recognize and honor the limited bandwidth many of them have for uh, bringing these evidence-based decisions together. So we tried to make one really good product um, that they could turn to for a resource around what do we know on that topic and then what might we do about it. So in the policy brief, one finding stated that the pandemic recovery continues to be uneven with a need for new funding and professional support. Can you expand on what this means and how that support could be provided? Yeah. So in particular, we know that early childhood programs were pretty differentially affected by the crisis and um, had differential supports from the kinds of funding that have been directed to them so far. So uh, really what we had before the crisis began was a broken system. So we had some places um, in which preschool teachers, for example, were treated just like their K-12 peers. They were compensated fairly, making a living wage, had good benefits. And then we had, say, their childcare uh, counterparts who might also be serving preschool students but are making a lot less money in a much more precarious kind of situation. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, um, th these places in particular, childcare and family childcare homes um, took a hit, right? And so they didn't have um, the kinds of guaranteed public funding streams to fall back on. Um, and some of them did close up shop. This wasn't a huge number nationally, but some have closed. 
um, and others are just really struggling. And so there are things like loans, for example, that were being distributed last summer, but a lot of childcare centers and family childcare homes were not able to take advantage of those, either because they were worried about taking on debt, for example, or because um, the, the systems were just difficult to navigate with everything else that they had going on with just trying to ensure the safety of their workforce and their kids. So as we look to um, recovery, uh, there is a lot of resources that the Biden administration has put forward and even more planned if the American Families Plan, for example, were to pass. And so um, states are basically in the midst um, as we speak of figuring out exactly um, what do places in their context need and what's the best way to distribute those funds. And so we see things like, for example, just giving all the teachers and childcare a pay boost, right? Um, so several states are looking at that, like how would they do that and how would they directly um, do that so that they get um, the childcare teachers um, more, at least more of a living wage um, as they, you know, report to work in the midst of the crisis. Continuing on that thought, educators have, of course, been greatly affected by the pandemic with increased complexity, stressors, um, and all of that, according to the report, has negatively affected their mental health. So what strategies can or resources can educators access that can assist with their mental health as they prepare for this upcoming school year? Yeah, so um, one thing we heard in the evidence uh, base broadly was that not all teachers had access to good health care, right? And so if you think about mental health, right, we know that that's scarce nationally in many contexts, and it's particularly going to be scarce if you don't have regular good health care. Um, so some states have um, been moving towards setting up um, Kind of networks or helplines that uh, states uh, that teachers could access if they need those supports, for example. Um, and many of teachers, as you mentioned, are really telling us that they do that their mental health has really been affected. Um, and this is also really important because we also have a real um, shortage in the zero to five area for teachers. So um, there are real constraints on what, say, a childcare center or family childcare home is able to offer in terms of payment at the same time that lots of other places have really upped their wages to compete for workers. Um, and so with all the stress and benefits uh, being limited in the early childhood space, uh, this is also adding up to, to a worker shortage within the um, field that's a little, that's difficult to, to solve uh, with um, the current kind of situation and fragmentation in the field. And transitioning to look at this, you know, for students, your research states that socio-emotional well-being is a critical aspect of children's health and development. So with the, you know, disproportionate impacts of the pandemic on families, how can educators support that socio-emotional development and provide students resources and support that they need for learning? So what we're going to see this fall is kids return more and more to in-person learning environments, um, if they weren't in them at all or in higher dosage, is uh, that teachers are going to be seeing a wider range of skills across multiple domains. So some kids have really thrived um, in the crisis. Um, so that's true. Some have done really well and others have struggled more. And so what we're going to see is that teachers are going to be asked to essentially cover um, or meet the needs of just a wider range of um, 
skills in kids than say in the before times. So um, in terms of socio-emotional development in particular, I think really recognizing that, really prioritizing relationships as kids come back into the classroom is going to be um, really key and just giving um, as much space for that as we are for um, you know, getting them caught up uh, for those who have suffered setbacks, say in their literacy development um, and making sure that uh, those two things are connected because a kid is not going to be able to really uh, engage in the classroom um, if they're really feeling anxiety, for example, or struggling with their acting out behaviors as they come back uh, to school. It's a really great insight. Thank you for diving into that. So where does this conversation and the research go from here as we're in this preparing for a transition phase uh, throughout the entire academic year? Yeah, I think we <laughs> have a lot of questions, right? And so as the Delta variant in particular starts to take rise in the U.S. and we have this kind of uneven pandemic or pockets of outbreak, I think there are a lot of, a lot of pressure and a lot of um, unknowns that our leaders are going to be faced with as well. Um, I think from here, uh, what we've seen is uh, that we already know we have tremendous need, that we have um, uneven effects on kids and families and on programs, depending on what kind of uh, type of program kids were in. And so state leaders who are basically now making the decisions about how they'll distribute resources um, have a sense of this, and they will be from here kind of targeting and doing their best to um, make sure that those who need more help um, are going to be getting it. What do you think are some of the biggest takeaways from this research that you've conducted on how the pandemic has impacted learning outcomes? Um, I think probably one of the things that we were most surprised about as we went deep into this evidence base was just how consistent the results are. So we know that some places were more hit by the pandemic than others, uh, for example. So, you know, you can look at the health statistics around who had more deaths or who had, you know, this kind of wave. Um, but with early learning, um, we know that pretty consistently across the country, uh, this was a system that wasn't doing well before the pandemic. And this uh, really exposed the fragilities um, within the system. So really the big takeaway here is that we have long been behind peer nations, especially from zero to five, on having a system that is fair, equitable, and that supports the needs of working parents in this area, right? And so uh, we kind of titled the brief historic crisis, historic opportunity, because hopefully we are now in a place where uh, the crisis has exposed how important this sector is to our society and the public will and demand will hopefully be there um, for finally pivoting to build the system that our families and our kids deserve. Is there anything else that you want to add to this conversation? Yeah, so I like usually to end with kind of a hopeful note. So I will say that, uh, you know, we have learned some things from the pandemic that I would say are broadly useful for education, right? And one of those is um, the ways in which virtual option can really help with connecting with families. So before schools had this sort of expectation that the parent perhaps at 2 p.m. could come to the school and meet with a teacher and, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, some parents could not do that. 
Um, and so tech options for connecting with families have really been one of the silver linings here of the pandemic around learning um, and really pushing um, educational systems to figure out other ways to connect. And so uh, given that we know from decades of research that parent engagement is super important to kids' success, hopefully we now have um, a model for how to um, make that happen because in a lot of cases, right, it hasn't been a lack of will from the families, it's just been a lack of means in terms of transportation or time um, for engaging in the way that they would like. Thank you for giving us that positive note to end on and for taking the time to share all of this immensely important and insightful information. I really appreciate it. And I know that the Michigan Minds listeners will as well. So thank you. Well, great. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I have many, many co-authors who too are, are glad and, and, uh, and appreciate the attention to the work. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.